So, like I mentioned, we're, we're coming to the end of our study of James, and, and we decided to study James for the summer, so that means, by default, we're coming to the end of the summer, which is always a tough thing. The kids are going back to school. I always enjoy spending a little extra time with my kids, having them around, so for the most part, I really lament when summer is coming to an end, when summer's over. But there is one aspect of summer that actually I don't miss when it's over. I'm actually kind of happy when it's over. And it's this, this kind of strange things that happened to, to parents and to me specifically. In summer, it seems to be this time where I'm required to vanquish all boredom for the sake of my children. That, that, that boredom is somehow the enemy of, of, of all things, and so uh, I have to fill every single moment of their lives uh, with the most exciting and wonderful opportunities, and if not, I'm not doing my job as a parent over the summer. So I don't mind when that's over and when they go back to school and, and we can get back to a little bit of rhythm, but, but here's kind of what happens in the summer for us. When... My kids wake up, they usually wake up around seven o'clock or so, and uh, within the first 30 minutes of them being awake, they'll ask some version of, of this question. This will be the first question. What can I do? Right, so they've already exhausted all potential possibilities in the first 30 minutes of the day on what they could do with their time, and so now they're coming to me for guidance and wisdom on that, and you think they would get smart because I'm not very nice when they ask that question, but uh, they still ask, and so I'll give them a list of, of things that they could potentially do. Usually that is insufficient, and so the second question comes very soon after. Well, can I just play on my Kindle or my iPod or whatever the case may be? Can I just do that? And, and usually I tell them no, uh, again, because I'm a mean parent, and and then uh, this happens. I get the, but I thought you loved me face. That's what we call it at, at our house. Let me see if I can simulate the, the, but I thought you loved me face. It's something like this. It's like, it's like surprise mixed with disdain. It's like, like it's total, they're like totally flabbergasted by the idea. It's the same face you give when the line at Target is longer than two minutes. You're like, how could this possibly be, right? It seems benign, all of this. It seems benign making sure your kids are never bored and giving them unlimited screen time if they want it. Maybe it is to a certain extent, but, but as kids grow, as we grow, and then you add in other things, add social media into the mix, add Netflix into the mix, add constant streaming content into the mix, add Amazon Prime into the mix, and then realize that that takes way too long a day. I don't wanna wait a day for something, so now they have Amazon Now, which means that you could actually get on your phone, order something, and it could possibly be delivered into this place before the end of the service, and I dare someone to try it, right? <laughs> We don't ever want to wait for anything. We never have to be bored. We don't have to have patience. If we don't like what's happening, we can just do something else. With the world at our fingertips, patience somehow becomes the enemy. Perseverance seems undesirable, if not completely unnecessary. But when we read the scriptures, things look a little different. Patience is really important in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians, one of the other letters of the New Testament, along with James in chapter 13, gives 16 different characteristics of what it means to love. The first, love is patient. In Galatians, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Patience is one of the aspects of a life lived in lockstep with God. N.T. Wright, a brilliant New Testament scholar, read anything you see uh, of his, says, the fact that patience is one of the key aspects of the Spirit's work in our lives might in itself tell us that such a precious gift is going to be needed. 
And if I had to sum up James's central message, this book that we've been looking at this summer, the one thing that I would say, different from Zach, Zach said he would sum it up by saying, I'm wrong, my summation would be a little bit different. My summation would be this, persevere, don't quit, have patience. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of James, it, it begins this way in, in verse two of chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And here at the end of James five, starting in verse seven, what we'll look at today, be patient. The whole section, chapter five, verses seven through 12 goes like this. It's in your bulletin if you wanna read along or if you have your Bible. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. James says, look at the farmer as an example of patience. For the farmer to produce a crop, and I'm from Indiana, and so I actually spent a lot of my life looking out my bedroom window across to a cornfield. And so in the winter, it would be completely fallow, meaning it was just snow on the ground. And then slowly, you'd see a little corn stalk, and then larger and larger, and it would take a lot of time. But for that crop to be produced, he or she has to start with preparing the soil. They'd have to, these big machines would come and till up the soil. And then they plant the seed. And then they keep the fields weeded and, and spray different things on it to, to make it right. They have to water the plants regularly over a period of time. And <clears throat> even that doesn't mean you'll produce a crop. The rains have to hit at a certain moment. The sun has to hit at a certain moment. Just the right conditions are needed over an extended period of time to produce a crop, for the crop to grow. That takes patience. I was talking to my friends this week about this, this message and I was really excited about it and I was, I was telling them I was getting kind of worked up and I was saying, you know, in the end, isn't patience, isn't that what we all want? Isn't honestly, like, we just wanna be patient people. Isn't that it? <clears throat> and they looked at each other kind of confused and like they were getting ready to let me in on a secret and, and they, they said, actually, no. Actually, I don't really wanna be patient. When I'm driving in my car and the person in front of me seems to not have any idea what the rules of the road are and they're impeding my ability to get where I wanna be, honestly, I don't want patience. I want them to get out of the way, right? When I'm on the phone with the, with the cable company and that cable company service provider uh, it doesn't quite understand how important those 200 channels are to me, like I don't really wanna have patience in that moment. What I want is for that person to do their job so that I can get back to watching my shows. We don't really want patience. We don't wanna be patient with that. We want people to do what they want and, or what we want them to do so that we can get back to doing what we ought to be doing. So why, the question, why be patient? In a world that does not ask us to, why should we be patient? Here's why. 
I think we should be patient. I believe we should be patient for the sake of the people that God's given us to love. That's what's at stake if we're not patient. The people God's given us to love. Maybe in your workplace, let me ask you a question. If, if you've been at your workplace for, for very long, you've probably had conflict of some sort, but maybe uh, someone has done something that, is, that has impeded your ability to do your work. They've done a bad job. They've cost you time or money, and you just crush them. You just absolutely crush them for that, and, and you say you've got to do better, and, and, or, or maybe, maybe you don't even talk to them. Maybe you talk to somebody else about them. Maybe you say, like, this guy is really bringing us down. This is terrible. Let me ask you a question. Did that ever bring you closer to the person that you're talking about or that you're crushing? You ever heard one of your kids lose their patience with another one of your kids, and, and you want to get on them, but then you realize, oh my gosh, the only reason they know how to do that and use those words is because you've used them before. Maybe the example of, of losing it in the car or with the cable company, maybe you think, well, yeah, but that's just like kind of in my own space. That's not, that's not a big deal. Here's the thing about impatience. It leaks. It leaks to every aspect of our lives. And so if we lose it in the car, guess what? You're gonna lose it somewhere else. Impatience leaks. But maybe that's not you at all. Maybe you're thinking, cool, I, I get off easy because I don't lose my patience. I, I don't lose it on people. I don't yell at people. I'm not loud. I'm not angry. So you're like, cool, I, I, I don't have to really listen in or lock in to the rest of this. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're not a person that struggles with, with kind of losing it or yelling. What about that business deal that isn't moving just quite fast enough? So you just maneuver your ethics just slightly to make things go a little faster. What about that relationship that isn't moving fast enough so you maneuver your morals just a little bit to make things go a little faster? What about that friend that calls you every once in a while and as soon as you see their number pop up, you say, nope, not answering, too much work. Impatience is really, really common, but it's not the best. So how do we develop patience? Well, I believe to grow in patience, we actually have to gain perspective. To grow in patience, we have to gain perspective. I've learned this recently that I think it's virtually impossible to have patience, to persevere, to be faithful, to move in the right, right direction uh, if things aren't going your way unless you have perspective, unless you have a full understanding of what's happening. I learned that uh, because uh, one of the weeks I've been out this spring was because I had an infection. Um, so it started this way. I had a little infection in my leg. It wasn't a big deal. It was this little kind of sore thing or whatever. And, and I woke up the next morning. It was kind of red. And I was like, oh, that hurts a little bit, but no big deal. And so went through the day and, and everything was fine. And then the next day I woke up and it had gone from this red spot to this red spot on, on my thigh. And I was like, well, that's not awesome, but I can't honestly admit that I'm sick. So I'll just kind of keep going. Abby being the smart one of the couple was like, you have to go to the doctor. Like that's what happens when people have things like this. And I was like, okay, mostly just to prove her wrong. Cause I'm sure the doctor's going to be like, that's totally normal. Uh, so I go to the doctor and uh, I had shorts on that day. And the nurse comes in and said, she said, what's going on? All that stuff. I said, I got this infection. And so she said, great. And so then the doctor finally comes in. She says, so I hear you have a little infection in your leg. I was like, yeah, no big deal. It's just kind of, it's, it's getting a little bit bigger over time. And so I thought maybe I should come in and get it checked. And she goes, okay, well, let me see it. So I, I pull my shorts up and she goes, this is the exact words that came, oh, that's not good. Which I was like, I don't think, I don't know what tests you've taken as a doctor, but I don't think you're supposed to say that first off. Um, 
And so she said, yeah, that's, that's not good at all. So I'm gonna put you on an antibiotic uh, and you have to do it. And then she took a, a, just a regular big pen and she starts drawing on my leg. And I was like, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm drawing an outline of the red mark where the, where the, the irritation is and where the infection is. And she said, she looked me in the eye, like dead serious. And she goes, if, it, if the red grows past this point, you must go to the emergency room immediately. And I was like, what? I, I was terrified. I didn't even wanna ask her. I was like, what happens if I don't? Does my leg fall off? Do I grow another one? Like what is supposed to happen there? And so I actually didn't even ask her. My leg didn't fall off, which is great uh, because I did what she asked me to do. It took perspective though, right? I was just gonna keep going about my business. If Abby hadn't been like, you're an idiot, you should go to the doctor, right? Perspective is what was so helpful. Perspective always gives clarity and clarity is the, is the soil that patience grows in without perspective, without having a longer view, without having a fuller understanding of what's going on, we miss out on the opportunity to be patient. John Wooden, who's one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, he has 11 national championships. He's the only person to ever be inducted into the Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. At one point, he, uh, as coach of UCLA, won 88 straight games and seven straight national championships. He was all about perspective. He was always looking uh, to, to see what was happening around, all the things that he could impact, even if something had to change, because that's often what happens. Often it can be painful to get perspective because you recognize something has to change, but it can always move you toward what is better. And so what he said, this great quote, he says, uh, success is doing what is best or doing the best you can with what you've been given. That's what he says success is. Doing the best you can with what you've been given. So that's perspective type question. What have you been given? Let's figure out the variables. Let's do the best we can with what we've been given. And so that's what we're gonna do for the rest of our time. We're gonna look at what we've been given. What have we been given in this world, in our lives, so that we can have perspective that can lead to patience. I'm sure whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, and if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you're, you, you stay. I hope you ask as many questions as you, as you want for as long as you need to to get answers to whatever questions you're asking. Uh, but even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't think you'd argue that, that, that this world is, 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 is rough. There, there are ideologies and actions that happen in our world that can leave us wondering, like, how could people hate others that much? Like how, how could this be? How could this world be like this? And so it leads us to asking questions like, well, maybe my only response, maybe the only way I can move forward in this world is just to hate in equal measure. Like I'll just hate back, right? That's the only way to protect yourself. Or maybe it leads us to think, well, if, if God was good, he'd show up and do something. So maybe God must not be good or maybe he's not here. Maybe we're just here to figure it all out on our own. But that's not all that's happening in the world. All that hate, all that is wrong with the world is not all that's happening with the world, even if it feels like it. And so it's important for the sake of perspective to understand a little bit more broadly what is going on in the world. This sounds silly, but here's some other things that are, that are happening in the world for us to just get perspective. Do you know that giant pandas are no longer endangered? Like I said, it sounds silly, but like a lot of work has gone into that being the case. Manatees are no longer endangered either. They are still slow though, so you still have to watch out for them. But they're no longer endangered. A lot of conservation work has happened. It was announced this year that homelessness in US veterans has declined 50% in the last 10 years. There's a long way to go, but that's movement in the right direction. Anybody remember that ice bucket challenge where people were pouring ice on their head and they were telling other people to pour ice on their head? It was all for uh, ALS research. 
Well, actually, all that money that came in because of the silly ice bucket challenge, they actually identified the gene that's associated with the disease and a cure might be this close. The Colombian government and the FARC, the FARC which is a, a rebel army in that area, they signed a peace agreement that ended a seven-year conflict where seven million people were either homeless or displaced as a result of. There's peace, at least on some level there now. Malawi announced that the HIV rate among children has dropped 67%. They created a vaccine for Ebola that is 100% successful. Ebola will never grip West Africa ever again. It was announced that world hunger has reached its lowest point in 25 years. In India, a country where uh, intense urbanization has happened, 50 million trees were planted in a 24-hour period with the help of 800,000 volunteers. The child mortality rate is at its lowest in human history. Extreme poverty in this world is at its lowest in history at less than 10%. There are these specially designed glasses that have been created. If you're on social media, you know that thing that I kind of implied was the worst thing to ever happen to the world. Uh, if you've seen the pictures of someone, uh, these specially designed glasses allow people to see color for the first time, colorblind people. So if you've seen the images of someone putting on those glasses for the first time and, and just being taken aback because they see color and you're crying right along with the family. There's a teacher in Afghanistan who is delivering books via bicycle to war-torn areas where there are no schools. This year, there was a, a funeral for a homeless World War II veteran who had no family, so uh, a, a social media campaign started and 200 strangers showed up to honor him at his funeral. And even in the worst of things, maybe even in a, especially in the worst of things, hope can be seen. Last year, our city experienced the worst of things, the Pulse shootings. 50 people died in our city and we were shaken by needless violence. Those types of things, that close to home, it can leave us fearful and despairing and overwhelmed and hopeless. But just days after that terrible event, this happened. It's a picture outside of the Dr. Phillips Center in our downtown in Orlando. Thousands of people gathered, not torn apart, brought together in hope, because there's something in every single one of us that screams, everyone matters. And when that doesn't get played out, we come together and say, that's not right and we should do something about it. And that beautiful picture is a result of that very action. Don't lose hope. The arc of history may be long, but it does bend toward justice and goodness and rightness. God said it would in the world when we get a full perspective of what's happening, the world actually bears it out. James in chapter five, he says, let me give you some perspective on why you should be patient. In verse eight, he says, be patient, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Throughout the scriptures, we're told that Jesus coming to earth inaugurated a new kingdom, a new reality, one that brought hope into this world. And when it says, this, this, this kingdom, this new reality of hope that he brought into the world, it says, though you fall short of God's glory, Jesus came to set the world right, to give his light so that you can have hope. And the scriptures tell us that the fullness of his kingdom will actually include him returning here, not us flying away to heaven, not us flying away and, and, and getting away from all of this, but no, heaven come here to undo all that was wrong. The promise of good coming here. And it makes sense that that was anticipated. Jesus prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
He said in Matthew 19, he said, I came for the renewal of all things. If you look at the Greek, it's parling genesia, again, beginnings, genesis, again, Eden restored. That's what Jesus came for. That's a breathtaking promise. That's what James is getting at in this letter. What he's telling us is live as part of this kingdom of love and joy and peace and restoration now as we wait for it to come in fullness, as we're patient. Because there are glimpses of that kingdom come all around and we shouldn't bury our head in our hands or pile on to the mountain of negativity. So I have a question for you. How much time have you spent thinking about what is good, what is truly good? in the last, say, week. So if I had a scale, and on one side of the scale is the time you spent thinking about what is good and right and true and just and noble that's worth putting your hope in, that's one side of the scale, and the other is all that is negative and wrong and bad and kind of the direction that you think things should be going that they aren't going and all the frustration, and you put them on both sides of the scale, which way would it tip? If it tips toward the negative, it's very likely it's hard for you to have much practical hope but it might be that you're lacking a full perspective. Because of what we've been given, a world that is not all right, but a world that's not all bad either, we can be hopeful. Every moment is ripe with the potential of us seeing the arc of history bend in the right direction. I saw this a couple weeks ago. I was in Indiana for 4th of July and uh, spending time with family, but one of the, the main events of us being there was we were... Uh, at the, the church that Abby grew up in, they were celebrating their 200th anniversary. It's incredible. The church has been around for 200 years. It actually started with a hymn. Two people were in a, in a, in a, a cake shop and they started singing a hymn together and they said, hey, let's, let's turn this into something. That's how the church got started. And for 200 years, the, God's been doing incredible things there. We're about to celebrate our 15th anniversary as a church. And so to go there and experience what 200 years of legacy, it was just really impactful. And so we were there and we were listening. What they did is they brought back people that had been essentially sent from that place who have done ministry all around the world in different ways, but have been impacted by the ministry there. And they asked me to speak, which was incredibly humbling. And so I did. But what really struck me is the, the last speaker of the evening uh, was a really well-known pastor in Southern Indiana who'd, who's been doing ministry for 40 years. I pray I get 40 years. And, and so he talked about all this, this impact that he's been able to see God do. But, but what really struck me is, and what he closed with was he talked about when he became a follower of Jesus and it was through this church that was celebrating its 200th anniversary. He was in the oil industry and uh, happened to find his way into a, a Sunday school. Um, a Sunday school class, and, and, he, and he said in this class, because he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to, he hadn't been around the church, and so he didn't know how he was supposed to act, he, he just kind of blurted out in the middle of class, I don't know how to talk to God. And so these kind people led him to service after Sunday school, and he sat and he listened, and then at the end, the pastor said, if, if anybody wants to pray at this altar, the altar is open for you. And so he walked up, because he didn't, he was like, why not? And so when he was there at the altar, he, he prayed, and here's what he said. he said. He said, my prayer was this. He said, Father, I screwed up. You can have it. You can have all of it. You can have my life. You can, you can have everything that's come, everything that's going. You can have all of it because I've screwed up. And he gets up from, from that prayer and he's walking back and he hears this voice in his head. And the voice says this. You were a jerk when you walked up there and you're a jerk now. You're a liar. 
And so he's kind of silent. He didn't blurt it out, but he, but he said, he said, my response to that was Satan, no, you're the liar. Today I saw Jesus and he saved my soul. He gave me grace and I intend to spend my time giving grace. Every moment is ripe with the potential of seeing the arc of history bend in the right direction. So what does giving grace as a result of experiencing grace look like? Well, James gives us a first step here in this scripture. He says in verse nine, don't grumble against each other. Strange, how is that so connected to grace? But what James is trying to tell us is that once we've experienced the perspective of seeing God set the world right through grace, James says, be patient with each other, extend grace to each other. Grumbling is essentially complaining, but it's like a certain brand of complaining. It's complaining about someone else in this kind of muted way. Not to the person, but about the person, what they do, what they believe, what they think. So what's happening when we grumble, when we complain in that certain sort of way? Well, what we believe is that we're not getting what we deserve. It's primarily self-focused. Grumbling is self-focused. And we might say, no, 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 it's not. Mainly, I just want what's best for them. No, you don't, because if you did, you'd go talk to them about it. It's about us. We're being burdened or inconvenienced by someone else's action. Either they're doing something that directly affects us in a way we don't want, or they're living in a way or doing something that we would rather not think about. And grumbling is a result of believing that I do not deserve to be inconvenienced by anyone. It's blatantly self-focused. It's saying, I can't believe that they would do that or think that way or be that way, not caring if we've ever been an inconvenience to anyone, or worse, thinking there's no way we could possibly be an inconvenience to anyone. It completely lacks perspective. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that differences, fundamental differences don't matter, that they should just be brushed under the rug and that you should never talk about them. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that differences are best worked through in the context of relationships. It's best worked out amongst some level of trust or mutual respect, and grumbling does not display mutual respect. In fact, grumbling is the thing that kills the potential of mutual respect. The chance of community is killed when we grumble. My dad has, has taught me all kinds of things in life, but one of the things that's really been bedrock for me is he always encouraged me to try to understand people. He said, the world will try to tell you that, that people are, are like a piece of paper, and that every situation is just either this way or that way. There's just two sides to it, and you pick which side you're on and you move forward. But he said, the world's not like that, really. People, situations, uh, where you find yourself, it's not a piece of paper. It's not this way or that way. Oftentimes, it's like a Rubik's Cube. And your job is to try to understand the puzzle, all the ins and outs and idiosyncrasies and how all the things are put together and how they've become how they are so that then you can engage in solutions. You have to understand all the sides before you move forward. It's an inconvenience to come in contact with imperfect people. It takes time and care and patience. But when given the option, the only one who was all right all the time, the judge, as James calls him here in the scriptures, when given the option, Jesus decided not to grumble from afar, but to offer grace which is at his heart focused on the best for others. Grace is the antidote to grumbling. He said, though you're not how you should be and you're not even who you will be, I'm not gonna turn from you now. 
So here's an idea. When you think about this idea of grumbling, here's an idea. I encourage you, try it for a week, see if it helps. When you're in that moment where you're about to talk about someone to, to someone else, when, you have, when you've got kind of that negative thing to say, it's been pent up for a while and you've been doing a good job of being patient, which is maybe not true. Maybe you've just been pushing it down for a while and it's, it's about to come out and you, and you think, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna let it rip. Do this, before you say one word, ask two questions. Is this helpful to the person that I'm talking about? That's the first question. And secondly, is there a way I can be helpful to the person I'm talking about? Those two questions will take patience. And it won't solve everything. Difficult people will still be difficult people. They're people. But seeing it from a different perspective might be the place where mutual respect starts. Because to grow in patience, you have to gain perspective. So James gives us a little perspective to drive the point home. In verse 10, he says, look at the example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets that are spoke about in the Old Testament. And then he points to Job. Job is this really fascinating character in the Old Testament. There's a book of the Old Testament that's named Job that tells his story. But he's presented as a good and, and righteous and prosperous family man. Everything's up and to the right. Everything's moving in the right direction. He loves God and he loves people and everything seems to be going just right. But then these horrendous things start happening to us, these to him, these disasters that start to take everything he holds dear away, his family, his prosperity, his health. And he struggles really hard through, through most of the, the book of Job. He's just struggling to understand the situation and he's searching for answers and the difficulty and he's starting to wonder like, what is going on? And these three friends come to him and they say, hey, we've got it figured out. One of two things going on here for sure. Either you've done something really, really bad and, and God's just punishing you. Or possibly God's the bad one. And Job in this moment, and he's in the pit of despair, right? He's in the struggle. He rejects both of those things. He says, no, that can't be. I followed hard after God to the best of my ability and I understand his love for me and I understand that he is good. And so he continued, he rejects their counsel, he sends them away. And eventually toward the end in Job chapter 42, you got 42 chapters of this, he confesses that through all the pain and through all the suffering, he's actually learned something, something fundamentally true about the power of God, certainly, but also about the goodness of God, about his good plan being worked out in and through people's life experience. So the example of Job given here by James, it isn't this, it isn't telling us this. This is not the message for you today that, that, that whatever trial you're experiencing really isn't that bad, so get over it. That's not what James is doing here, that's not what Job is teaching us because that's not the gospel, that's not who God is. What is being communicated here, the lesson is that God is near the brokenhearted and he weeps with those who weep. The reminder of Job here is to remind us that having a long view of his plan and his purposes in our life won't always be easy, but it will be worth it because that's what perspective does. That's why we're reminded of Job for the sake of perspective. Perspective doesn't make faithfulness along the way easy. It doesn't. Trial is trial. We live in a broken world with broken people. Sometimes sin will be a result of our own activity. Sometimes sin will just bump into us on the way we're going and we'll say, what is that all about? It won't make faithfulness easy, but it reminds us that it's worth it because we have a long view. 
having a perspective of God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness is so helpful in us than being trustworthy people. James closes with this. He says, above all things, don't swear, strange. Not by heaven or earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Simply say yes or no. It's interesting that he closes this section this way, but there's only one place in the scriptures, hopefully this will be helpful. There's only one place in the scriptures where someone swears in the way that James is talking about. It was on the night of Jesus's trial uh, and, and Peter is standing at the distance. He's around a fire as Jesus is on trial. And someone asked him like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Like, don't you follow him? He's like, no, 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 not me. He's like, no, I'm pretty sure I saw you with Jesus. He's like, look, I'm telling you, not me the second time. And then the third time, he's like, no, no, no. I definitely saw you walking up the road. And he says, not me. I don't know him. I swear it. It kind of puts some perspective on, on why this swearing thing might be such a big deal. To add an oath to what you're saying, if, if we take that literally, is invoking some type of supernatural power to support what you're saying. But what James is saying in this section, what he's saying more than anything else, is he insists that if you speak as people who are hopeful, as people who are graceful, as people who are trustworthy, your word lived out is enough. If you're patient to be hopeful and graceful and trustworthy, your word is enough. As E. Joseph Kosman once said, the greatest power is often patience. James, to close this letter, like he did in the open, actually is said to grow in patience. You need perspective. You need a fuller view. And gaining perspective, again, it won't make the trials go away. It won't. In this world, you will have troubles, Jesus said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That's what gives us perspective. And when we have a fuller sense of what's happening, and we let that inform how we live, we almost certainly will be people who are more hopeful and more graceful and more trustworthy. And that's good for us. But it's also good for our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers. It is good for us to be hopeful and graceful and trustworthy, to have perspective. But it's also good for the people God's given us to love. That's why it matters. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for James and the challenge that he gives. Thank you that right there in your scriptures, there's the, there's the call, the invitation to not quit, to persevere, to be patient. I pray that each of us in this room might be more able to do that as a result of having a full perspective of what you're doing in the world. You setting things right here. You, even in the midst of things not being all right, promise us and show us that things aren't all wrong either. That we're moving toward things being right and good and true and that we can be a part of that movement by being patient with others, by not grumbling against others. I pray that we would take seriously the invitation to evaluate where we're doing that and why we do, that we would be changed as a result of coming in contact with this scripture today, that we might bring more light into this world that is far too dark, far too often. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.